Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 7, 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you. I pray that you are doing well, Sojourn family, and uh, that the Lord is uh, with you and near, and that you're, you're grounded and rooted in this moment in time so that we can humble our hearts before him and hear his word. Uh, before we get started today, um, I do want to uh, let you all know something that's, that has happened within our, our Sojourn uh, Network family. And I say this with uh, tremendous sadness and uh, deep grief uh, that Pastor Kevin Galloway, who is the lead pastor of Christ Church, uh, which is in Michigan City, Indiana, he was killed in a car accident early this morning, uh, early Friday morning, excuse me, on May 24th um, in Indiana near his home. And uh, Kevin is survived by his wife, uh, Devanna, and their three children, uh, Zach, uh, Stephen, and Lindsay. And the reason I let you all know this is because we have, uh, we're part of a network of churches called Soldier Network. Uh, many of these churches have come out of our church or some have been adopted uh, into our church family, meaning that they uh, really like the DNA of Sojourn Church and, uh, and they're committed to the same thing that we're committed to, which is planting healthy churches. Kevin, uh, before I was a member of Sojourn, uh, uh, and pastor here at Sojourn, my wife and I, we were at another church, but we used to be a part of the Sojourn Network. And he was one of the first couples that we met on a retreat. He's a godly man. He preached at one of our Sojourn campuses last week. Um, he was with Pastor Cliff for three days uh, just before uh, this week at a retreat as well. And uh, he didn't expect to, to go and to meet uh, his Savior on Friday morning. Um, but he got into a car accident that took him there. And I just want us to pause and to pray for his church. We have another Sojourn Church uh, pastor, a pastor by the name of Ronnie Martin, who is traveling uh, to uh, preach to his church um, uh, this morning as they gather to mourn the sudden death of their, their pastor. Kevin was an incredibly passionate man about Jesus, um, a dear, dear friend to many, um, even within this congregation. And we want to pause and pray. And also just want to remind us of the, the brevity of life, um, how frail life is, um, so that we as a church uh, can remember not to take each other for granted um, and today for granted. So let's pray for him and his family, and let's pray for ourselves. Lord, uh, your word tells us to uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And I do pray for uh, Sister Galloway and her three adult children. I pray, Father God, that you would just be merciful to them this morning as it is their first Lord's Day without, without Kevin. Um, a big personality, incredible leader and author, a a friend, 
Um, I pray, Father God, that you will be merciful to that church as they get ready, ready to gather in Chicago in just an hour to sit under your word and to lament and to mourn. And I pray, Father God, that you would remind us that uh, we are just blades of, of, of grass here today and gone tomorrow, and that, um, and that we have all eternity to, to live and before you and to, to celebrate what you've done with each other, but um, how important today is, how important this moment is. Um, and I pray, Father God, as we sit under the weight of this and as we pray for his family and his church, that it'll be a... Just a reminder to us, Lord, to live before you, to serve you with all our heart, mind, and soul as your disciples so that we can grow and uh, impact eternity um, by living lives of love before the world. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. There was a survey done by the Barna Group over 10 years ago. And they uh, surveyed a, a thousand people who were outside of Christianity who would identify themselves as not being Christian. And they asked them several questions that um, are getting to the basic idea of how do you perceive Christians? And the top two answers that these non-Christians gave were they perceived Christians to be or experienced Christians to be both judgmental and hypocritical. And even though the survey was done 10 years ago by the Barner Group, I believe that the same answers will be true today and that many perceptions that people have of Christians have actually worsened. Uh, we live in a time of what we call moral rel relativism, which, uh, which dominates our time, a time in which absolute truth um, is looked upon as being judgmental, a time in which um, people believe that what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. And if you tell me that there is an absolute truth, a, a divine truth, um, then you are, are judging me. And so when it comes down to uh, truth, uh, most people believe that there is no absolute right or wrong unless, of course, it's like pedophilia, mass murder, or someone else is disciplining their kids, right? Um, anything that is other and extreme um, is where we draw the line. But to be honest, at a quick glance, it appears that non-Christians uh, are right. Uh, Christians, according to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, um, it says, clearly do not judge so that you won't be judged. And at a, a quick glance, um, it, it seems as if this is true. But today we want to uh, dig in to see whether or not this is true. Um, in a time in which people are quick to say, don't judge me, it's a popular mantra, it's a popular hashtag. Um, if we were to uh, kind of interpret uh, what don't judge me means, uh, we know that it, it essentially is said uh, by someone when they have expressed an opinion or did something that they know uh, to be wrong or that could be easily frowned upon. Uh, they say it to kind of shut down a conversation as they anticipate that judgment is coming. And so as Christians, this is important for us to know, does the Bible teach us that, that we should not judge? Does the Bible teach us that uh, we should not uh, criticize others? Um, uh, how do we balance uh, what we see in Scripture, this call to speak the truth, and yet this, this call not to judge? Well, today's text, that's what we're going to look at. 
And I believe this question is going to become even more important in the upcoming uh, years and decades as I believe this moral relativism is just going to continue to grow, this idea that there is no absolute truth. And we want to look at two main points today. And the first is this, is that kingdom citizens are called to live with convictional kindness, not judgmental condemnation. And second is that kingdom citizens are called to pursue authenticity and not hypocrisy. So even as we think about this survey that was done 10 years ago, we see that Jesus is going to deal with both of these answers or perceptions in verse 1 by telling us not to judge, in verse 5 by, by calling out hypocrisy. Uh, in verse 1, do not judge so that you uh, won't be judged. Now, anytime we read the Bible, we want to remember that every verse is within a, a paragraph. Every paragraph is within a chapter. Every chapter is within inside a, a book, right? Um, and we want to be careful to make sure that we are not devoiding a sentence from uh, the entire argument that Jesus has been making. At face value, it seems that Jesus is saying that it is never okay for us to be critical or for us to discern. Uh, but as, as we look closer to the scripture, we see that that is not what Jesus is saying. Uh, Jesus, in context, is not saying that we should throw away all discernment, but rather what he is saying is that we should not condemn. This word judge is used in a very broad way. Sometimes it's used uh, to speak of um, hypercritical condemnation, and sometimes it's used just to speak of, of discernment. Um, here, according to the context in which Jesus is, is teaching, and according to, to all that we know in, in Scripture, we can conclude that what Jesus is coming down upon right here in this passage is this idea of condemnation, this idea of of harshly uh, critiquing others as if we ourselves are God, as if we ourselves have the very last say-so, as if the person that stands before us is an absolute uh, lost cause and we stand upon them and have the final word upon their lives. In James chapter 4, verse 11 through 12, Jesus says this, James says this, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And so we see in James chapter 4, verse 11 through 12, uh, that what Jesus is talking about here is this defamation of character. It's this harsh critique as if we ourselves are God. Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 14, verse 10 through 12, when he writes, but you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account to himself of, to God. And so again, this judgment that the Bible is speaking is often related to us putting ourselves on God's throne and God's seat and speaking a final word over people or speaking to people as if we are our God. 
The idea behind do not criticize in both James and Matthew is not saying don't speak the truth or don't inspect the fruit of a person's life, but rather don't condemn them as if we have the final word. Don't approach a person as if you can put them in heaven or hell as if they are an absolute lost cause. Now, let's remember the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has redeemed a community and he is calling them uh, to be his disciples. He's calling them to be conformed into his image. He is calling them to be kingdom citizens. In essence, he is calling them to be salt and light. Also remember that much of what Jesus is doing, and this is what discipleship is, it is a calling away from a one type of living to a specific kingdom type of living. And in order to do this, Jesus is undoing um, a lot of religiosity that was in uh, the Jewish uh, community as as these uh, uh, people who were chosen by God um, were following religious leaders who were blind, deaf, and dumb themselves, right? They have this external religion that looks good, but inwardly, uh, Jesus calls them corrupt. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them, he essentially calls them vipers, right? because they're so concerned with the outer appearance, but their heart is far from him. And Jesus is saying, no, I have called you to be salt and light. Um, I have called you to live in an attractive way. We talked about the Sermon on the Mount and how it starts off with these blessed attitudes, these attitudes that, that essentially are leading to flourishing, these attitudes of being poor in spirit, of, of mourning, of, uh, of, 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 of lamenting and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Jesus is shaping and conforming us to look like him. And he's saying, if you are going to follow me, if you are going to be my disciples, it is because you are rejecting what you see in the Pharisees, these people who you have set up as your spiritual heroes, who harshly critique and condemn everyone, who is so uptight, who is so uptight. He's saying, I'm not calling you to that lifestyle, but to a different lifestyle. Remember, he has just told us that when we are slapped, we turn the other cheek. And when someone asks us to go one mile, we go an extra mile. Now, Jesus is not telling us to suspend all discernment, and he's not telling us that we can never call wrong wrong. It's quite the opposite. In fact, how do we know that? We know that because Jesus has been teaching all along what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. The very Beatitudes themselves let us know who is a part of the kingdom, who is walking the narrow way, right? He's already told us we can't serve God and money. It takes judgment to be able to, to, to do that. In this very passage, he's going to tell us not to give our pearls to pigs or swines. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. That's a very straightforward statement. Um, And if Jesus is not telling us that we can never speak tough truths, right? Later on in the sermon, he's going to tell us that there's two ways to live. Either we build our life on a rock or we build our life on sand. So Jesus is not calling us to suspend all judgment. But what Jesus is after is hearts that are rejecting self-righteousness, hearts that are rejecting um, seeing ourselves as the moral standard and hearts that are full of compassion and mercy and full of truth. Verse 2, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure 
that you use. Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. Um, Eugene Peterson, in his book called The Message, uh, paraphrases this verse this way. He says, don't pick on people, jump on their failures, and criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. The critical spirit has a way of boomerang, has a way of boomerang. And that's the Jesus in, in verse 2 is, and in this chapter is calling us to, um, to what has uh, come to be called convictional kindness. We want to be Christians that have conviction, but who are kind, not judgmental condemnation. And one way in which we can move towards convictional kindness instead of this judgmental condemnation, instead of this hypercriticality, is by understanding this principle And by asking ourselves, am I willing to be evaluated and analyzed by others in the same way that I evaluate and analyze others? Yesterday, I was in a grocery store uh, standing in a long line, and I was just kind of meditating on these verses, um, uh, trying to just continue to to storm in my heart. And there was a couple behind me, and it was the saddest conversation as this gentleman was just, I mean, he was just going in on his wife. I mean, he was, it wasn't in a, like a harsh tone, but literally he was just going through everything she had done wrong since um, she had come into the grocery store. And it was a list of like seven things. And she looked at him and she said, can you tell me one thing that I've done right? And she said, in fact, just tell me one thing that I've done right today. She says, you're always pointing out every small thing that I do wrong. What's one thing that I've done right? And you know what he said to her? You tell me one thing you've done right. And then he said it back to her to taunt her and said, there you go. I've given you one thing. And I'll be honest. I was about to turn around and say something. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I didn't. I just turned around and kind of gave him a look. I think it was a look of convictional kindness. (laughs) Uh, But it was just to let him know, like, bruh. (laughs) All right. Um, and so, so Jesus is kind of after this heart of constant condemnation. And he's saying, treat people how you want to be treated. Like, and I want to be treated in a specific way, right? I want to be treated fairly and given the benefit of the doubt and generously and kindly, don't you? Don't you want people to come to you with the benefit of the doubt instead of with conclusions? Um, I don't want to be judged and evaluated. Um, by someone when they don't know the whole picture or situation. When I fall and make a mistake, um, I, I don't want to be, I want to be treated with, with, with kindness and, and given mercy. What Jesus is doing in this, this, this sermon is, is pointing, in this section of sermon, is pointing us back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, where he says, be merciful as your father, your father, your father in heaven is merciful. In essence, in heaven is merciful towards you. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken by any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, that is, you who are pursuing Jesus, you who are indwell with the power of the Holy Spirit, you restore them. But how do you do so? You do so with gentleness. John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that Jesus came from the Father and he was full of grace and what? It's on the screen and truth. (laughs) He was full of grace and truth. Jesus is trying to form a community that is full of grace 
Um, grace without truth, it doesn't help people to grow. It encourages this kind of loose type of living, this anything goes type of living because God saved me. Truth without grace, it buries people. It encourages this kind of pharisaical living, this fundamentalism. It encourages an atmosphere of, of fear, a defeated way of living. Now, living the way of grace and truth doesn't mean that we never come with energy towards people. It never means that we don't, don't strongly rebuke people. It just means that we're extremely slow to do so, and we, we discern when to do so. It's fascinating to me that when Jesus brings his most energy and his most harshest or hard critiques, it's, it's never uh, uh, towards really the babes in Christ. It's always towards those who are leaders. It's always towards those who um, have a hard heart or who, who walk around as if um, they have arrived. It's to the Pharisees. It's to the Pharisees. It's to break up that hard soil. I also want to note that for Christians, our responsibility uh, to, to discern or judge or even to call out specific sin, um, it should be most often towards believers. Like we should be uh, discerning and, and looking at and looking for the fruit of the Spirit in each other's life um, instead of people who don't know Jesus. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, for what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outside. Outsiders, remove the evil person from, from among you, right? So the Apostle Paul, in, in context of 1 Corinthians 5, is, is talking to the church who is allowing uh, someone who is claiming to be a Christian to walk in habitual, intentional, flagrant sin. And he's saying, you all need to discern and to call that person out. And essentially, in the context of that passage, if that person does not repent in turn, you treat him as if he doesn't know Jesus. But he's saying, you don't have that same posture of heart towards someone who doesn't know Jesus. Um, the main thing we should want for people who don't have a relationship with Jesus, and if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, our main concern isn't a, a specific way that you're living or, or sin, right? Our main concern for you is, is your unbelief. Um, we are more concerned at the fact, first and foremost, that you uh, don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior because Jesus is absolutely amazing. And he has given us an opportunity to be forgiven of sin and to have life. And what he's done on the cross is, is to redeem people and to connect them to God the Father. And we want you to know him. And that should be your heart, Christian, towards non-believers. But towards each other, we should be discerning. We should kindly uh, help each other uh, to, to walk in a matter that is pleasing to God. And that brings us to our second point, which is the call for Christians to live authentic lives. Authentic lives. Jesus writes in verse 3, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye, hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Now, 
Jesus' audience, as they heard this, they would have understood once again that this is humor, okay? Um, this is a sermon that Jesus has given, and this is an illustration that would have caused people to laugh. Uh, this word splinter, I think an uh, uh, even uh, better uh, interpretation of it is this like sawdust, right? Jesus is a carpenter. He's using this illustration of carpentry. He's saying, how can you who have a piece of sawdust um, stuck in your eye um, uh, try to call out your brother who has a whole like wood beam stuck in theirs and no one can have a, 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 like a tree trunk stuck in their eye, right? But people would have chuckled. And, and what he's saying is, um, is that sin, sin kind of, it binds and it, it makes us, uh, it hardens our own heart to our own sin and it, make, it leads us to be Pharisees where everyone else has a problem but us. We have a whole beam in our eye and yet we're trying to get out a speck out of someone else's eye. Scott McKnight says this, Jesus is creating awareness leading to self-judgment. This leads to humility, which in turn leads to repentance and sanctification. This leads to the kind of humility that treats other sinners with mercy. It creates a kingdom society shaped not by condemnation, but humility, love, and forgiveness. What Jesus is calling us to is to, to pause and to do some self-reflecting and some self-examination and to do so in a way um, that leads us to say, Jesus, I need you. It's to be poor in spirit and to mourn over our own sinfulness, to cultivate hearts that are, are constantly in touch with our own brokenness um, so that in doing so, uh, we can be humble. We can run to Jesus, seek his mercy, and then give mercy to others. The question I want to ask you today is when do you find yourself being self-righteous and judging other people harder than you judge yourself? And what about the gospel are you not believing by faith? I think there's a number of different situations that lead us to, to judge others uh, more critically than we ought to. One is insecurity. It's insecurity. I notice, and you've probably noticed too, that we have a tendency to judge other people um, harder uh, than we ought to when we are jealous of them or insecure within ourselves. When we find someone who we perceive to be better looking or more successful in their job or making more money of us, then we, uh, we can tend to, uh, to criticize them uh, more harshly uh, than we should because we're trying to make ourselves feel better. Oh, yes, they have a, a beautiful family. But, I mean, did you hear about what she said to such and such two years ago? Or yes, that's a really nice car that they have, and they do a good job keeping it clean, but my goodness, should Christians really drive cars that nice? Or, or yeah, 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 he's a, a, a really a good worker, but we all know he's not the most organized person. It's this insecurity that drives us to narrow in on someone else, or when we want to control someone else. Like we, we put them down with our, our words, hoping to make them insecure so that they can do what we want them to do. Oftentimes when we find ourselves hypercritical, it's because we're being moralistic 
And it shows up in our tongue because what comes off the tongue, it comes from the heart. In the Sonship Manual, the third edition, it has a powerful paragraph in which it says this, our tongues also shows us how spiritually proud and self-righteous we are. For example, my critical tongue often reveals a heart that is sadly out of touch with how much grace, love, and forgiveness I have received. I know this because what's overflowing through my tongue is not love, but instead a spirit of being better and knowing better than others. I'm right and they are wrong. And I need to point it out so that everyone is clear about it. I complain because I know that I am right and everyone else is wrong. Likewise, my instinctive defensiveness and inability to apologize sincerely and quickly demonstrates that I'm not really trusting God to, God to be my reputation and my righteousness. I must uphold my good record of performance before others. I need people to know that I'm better than they think when in fact... I can safely say I'm actually worse than they think. These and other failures prove how easily I slip away from living out the gospel. Listen, when we are hypercritical and condemn people, it is a gospel issue. And it often flows out of our tongue, either towards that person or towards someone else, because we are not, we are not seeking our justification in Christ and Him alone. We are finding our justification in ourselves. We are finding our justification maybe in the approval of the other person that we're gossiping to. And we are grasping for approval and acceptance. And Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 says this, Jeremiah says to the people of God, for my people have committed a double evil, they have abandoned me the fountain of living water and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. And listen, every time, and this is so we can grow in self-awareness, every time we harshly critique someone else and condemn them as if we're God standing over them, in that moment, we are going to a broken cistern for our justification. Christ has saved us and redeemed us by, by his righteousness. God uh, says that we are spiritually rich in Christ Jesus. We don't have to justify ourselves, vie for approval, vie for attention, because in God, we are complete. And it's in those small moments when we down other people or harshly critique other people that we are seeking to find our justification or building our righteousness um, upon maybe our own morality. It's during those times that we often critique people in areas that we find ourselves good at, right? And give grace to people in areas that we don't find ourselves good at. And so my question for you is, is what, what uh, fountain are you going to? Are you going to living water for your justification or are you going to broken systems? I was talking to a, 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 a mentor friend of mine about this this week, and he told me a story about uh, visiting a third world country and how years prior, a uh, missionary had come over and uh, helped to uh, dig um, a, a, water, a water pattern in which a, a small community can go to to get fresh water. 
And he talked about how much joy it brought this community and how the adults would, would go down to the stream and find fresh, clean water. But he noticed that when the kids were playing, that rather than them running uh, to the stream of fresh water, that they would go to this other water source, which was a, a, a stale and dirty water source that, that oftentimes had uh, human waste in it. And just for a quick drink of water, um, rather than kind of go a little uh, out their way to get this water, they would just settle for this water that they had been drinking from. And he said, you know, Jamal, the Lord taught me in that moment that I oftentimes, instead of going for Jesus, uh, for my justification, um, I oftentimes settle for, for dirty water. I, I critique and use my tongue harshly against others just for that instant feel of satisfaction to make myself feel better about myself. And Jesus is inviting us here not to go to that dirty water, to be people who are full of mercy and kindness. And when we feel insecure about ourselves, when we feel that we um, uh, have to feel better about ourselves or the moral standard to, to humble ourselves before Jesus and say, Jesus is my righteousness. This insecurity that, I, that is brewing in my heart, um, it, it really doesn't matter because I am fully loved and fully accepted by God. And he's crazy about me. And it's to find ourselves robed by him. That was four quick, um, four quick applications to this if we're going to live lives of convictional kindness. And the first is to remember this. Uprightness does not, uptightness does not mean uprightness. Some of us are just wound a little too tight. And God's invitation to you is for you um, to rediscover his grace. To rediscover his grace. To relinquish control and to see that your heavenly father he loves you, and that just being uptight, being on edge does, does not mean that you're upright. In fact, it, it often kills atmospheres and it kills joy. Jesus was fully alive. And how do you know that Jesus was fully alive? You know that Jesus was fully alive because of the type of people that wanted to hang out around him. The Bible says that he was full of truth, yes, but he also was full of grace. And who was hanging around him? It was the marginalized of society, people that the Pharisees would never hang around. But not only was it the marginalized of society, it was women. Like, most women I know don't want to hang around really uptight guys. <laughs> and not only was it women, but it was children. Children have a way of sensing if, if someone is kind of safe or think that they know if someone's safe. <laughs> And if, if someone is loose. So Jesus carried himself in a way um, that was welcoming and not condemning. A second, remember that wisdom is always required when ministering to others. Wisdom is always required when ministering to others. When people stand before us, especially people within our, our Christian faith, we need to ask ourselves the question, is this person's sin? Jesus does not say, uh, don't remove the sawdust or help uh, point out the splinter in someone else's eye. He says, first, uh, get the beam out of your own. In other words, make sure that you're living an authentic life uh, before you uh, help a brother and sister in Christ. And he's not saying make sure that you're perfect. No, he's saying that make sure that you're actually pursuing him in an authentic way. But re remember, uh, when ministering to others, that it requires wisdom. Ask yourself, is this a cough, a cold, or cancer that the other person is dealing with? 
If another person has a cough, meaning that it's a situation and they um, have done something silly or, or sinned, um, we don't want to treat it as if it's a cancer and like recommend chemo, right? No, let them cough. Maybe something's caught in their throat. The Bible says that uh, love covers a multitude of sin. We don't have to be sin police always pointing out when someone does something wrong. But if it's a cold, right, or, or the flu, if it's habitual, if it's, 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 it's a character, or if it's, it's, it's uh, this, this constant theme that we see, uh, then we should seek to come in gently and to help them, to help them by pointing them to the gospel, by pointing them to Jesus. And if it's cancer, um, then you may want to bring more energy to that. And if that person doesn't listen to you, um, go and get uh, two or three other people, as Matthew chapter 18 says. Next, remember that the end goal is the other person's flourishing. Whenever we bring critique to someone, we want to remember that the end goal is seeing that person flourish, is seeing that person grow, is seeing that person happy, is seeing that person with joy. If you're bringing critique to someone to tear them down or to embarrass them, you need to come again. You need to check your own heart, get the beam out of your own heart, ask yourself, what am I treasuring more than the good news of Jesus? Why do I believe that bringing critique to this person is going to justify me, is going to make me right with God or make me feel better about myself? John Wesley says, the judging that Jesus condemns here is thinking about another person in a way that is contrary to love a way that's contrary to love. And then finally, I want you to remember that the kingdom of God is like a pearl. Jesus does end this with a very hard word. He says, don't give what is holy to gods, to, to dogs, I'm sorry, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. And so what is Jesus doing? I mean, these are hard words. Who is God, Jesus calling a dog or a pig? Well, Jesus is using this illustration um, intentionally. And really what he's doing is supporting his call um, to, to, to have discernment. Um, dogs uh, back then and pigs were seen, these are not domesticated animals, um, mostly they were seen as, as vicious animals. So you, if you read through the Psalms, the same language sometimes is used to speak about the Messiah who's going to die at the hands of dogs. These are bloodthirsty people. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, hear what I'm saying, understand this base, these principles that I'm telling you, but also know that there are some people who are extremely vicious. And he's saying, you do need to discern whether or not um, you should give your pearls to them. Now, what's the pearls? Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus talks about pearls, he's talking about the message of the kingdom, which is the gospel of, of the kingdom. And so what he's saying is what he's going to say later in Matthew chapter 10 and what he models later on in the gospel when he stands before Herod. And when Herod asks him a question, he doesn't say anything. But yet we see when he stands before Pilate, he does give short answers. And that is the bloodthirsty people who have a, a heart um, that is super hard and cold. Um, there does come a point where, where it is okay for you to stop um, and you to pause from preaching the gospel to them because uh, their heart is not in a place and it's hard to receive it. But Jesus' main point here is this, is that the gospel that we have received is a pearl. It, it's beautiful. And I just want to remind you that, 
that the gospel, this good news that we receive, that we have been saved by grace, that we have been justified by faith alone, it is absolutely precious. It is so precious that we want to make sure that we are not offending people unnecessarily. Because this message of the kingdom it is going to offend people. Um, it is going to be aroma to life to some and aroma to death to others. And let's make sure that we ourselves are not being offensive by being condemning people. And every Sunday we gather together to celebrate the gospel of the kingdom by eating bread and drinking wine. This, this meal that we eat reminds us of Christ's faithfulness to us and the fact that he did not come into the world to condemn the world, uh, but he, he came in, in love in order that those who were in the world, um, that they will repent, trust him, and be saved. And every Sunday we take bread and break it. We drink wine or juice. The bread represents Christ's body. The wine and juice represents his blood. We take a piece of bread. We dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine. If you're not a Christian at this time, as we take this family meal together, um, we want to invite you um, not to eat or drink with us at this time. Um, And this is not a message of condemnation, but uh, rather this is an invitation for you to just think about what you've heard. As Christians, we believe that this uh, is a symbol of us identifying with the life and death of Jesus Christ. And we take this meal in order to examine our hearts. Also, there are going to be some Christians sitting in the seat as well, uh, because the Bible tells us to make sure that when we take this meal, that we are taking it um, with the heart posture of forgiveness and reconciliation towards each other. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 invites us to be honest with ourselves as we're not in a place with someone else like that, to forego taking a meal at that time and to spend time allowing the gospel to minister to our hearts, to remember that God has been merciful to us and to see if we, empowered by the Holy Spirit, can be merciful to another.